What do you think of when you think of the new year? For many people, it's an opportunity to reset, set those New Year's resolutions up, try and maybe lose a couple pounds or be a little nicer or read some more books. I think that there is a real optimism generally as we look to a new year, an opportunity to hit that reset button and maybe just better ourselves, better the world. That optimism doesn't last long in the Detroit area where a killer will wreak havoc on kids ultimately leaving four tied to the same individual, but eight children abducted and murdered from seemingly safe Detroit suburbs. Amity White, this is the Forever Children of Oakland County, and New Year's Day 1976 is going to be one unlike any other. Before we get into the murders themselves and the stage that we are on here, we think we have to set the stage. We need to know where we are, what's the setting for the story, just what is it like living in Detroit and the surrounding areas in 1976 and 1977 when this whole thing really takes place. Now, Detroit, we know that it has a reputation today, which I'll always take umbrage with. However, things aren't super bad at this point in time. We've got the big three auto manufacturers are still doing decently well at this time, so that's General Motors, Chrysler, and, and Ford all in the Detroit area or in the city itself, and they're doing pretty good, but they are facing increasing threats from foreign competition like Toyota and Volkswagen. The city of Detroit, its cracks are beginning to show also, mostly due to two race riots that occurred. There's a less popular, in terms of popular cultural knowledge, in the 40s, and then there's another race riot in 1967. That's the, the more famous one with tanks rolling down the street from the National Guard. I mean, this is serious stuff here. So that leads to, and this is not a comprehensive history lesson by any means, but this leads to the white flight. When primarily white people, because those are the people that can afford to move out of the city, after seeing this violence, maybe the direction that the city is headed in, they move out to the suburbs. Now, this isn't entirely 100% driven by the race riots. The moves to suburbia is happening around this time all over America, but those things certainly heighten these moves. So most people move to western Wayne County, so Detroit is located in Wayne County, so they either move west in the same county, or they go north, cross the 8-mile road, yes, the M&M 8-mile, to Oakland County, and Oakland County, it's kind of this sort of prestige place to go, this prestige address almost. If you live in Oakland County, that's sort of this, uh, you know, prestigious place to be because the area is very, very nice. And so the automakers and the executives at these very Silicon Valley type wealth type power even places, when they go home in the evening to contemplate the threat of foreign automaker competition, they don't live in the city, they don't pay taxes in the city for living there, where maybe back in the 50s they once would. They're driving to Oakland County, to the suburbs, to the tree-lined streets, to those places to escape the violence of the city, even though, like I said, the city's not in total decline at this point, but the suburbs are certainly perceived, and most numbers bear it out, safer. So it's against the backdrop of tree-lined streets and lesser crime that we find ourselves leading right into 1976. Judy Farrow, a junior, 
at Our Lady of Mercy High School in Farmington, Michigan, an all-girls school. It's actually a very nice uh, school. It's still there. Uh, she was hired to babysit for Mr. and Mrs. David Lotz in Redford, where she lived, which is actually in Wayne County, um, but it's close to Oakland County if you just drive a little bit north. So she was uh, babysitting two kids. Mr. and Mrs. Lotz returned home uh, just after, I believe, 1030, and Judy was there, the kids were there, everything was fine, everything was going great. Uh, and then after midnight, Judy's mom called the house and wished her a happy new year. Judy answered, things seemed fine. By all accounts, for the junior in high school, she's going to walk out of here with, you know, a couple extra bucks in her pocket and, uh, you know, go back to school, live her life, and everything is going to, you know, proceed as usual. That's certainly what it seems. However, the lots return home at about 3.10 a.m. on that day, on New Year's Day, of course, New Year's morning at this point, according to the Redford Observer and Eccentric, and they don't find Judy in the house. Their kids are there, the kids are sleeping, and that's totally fine, and they're all good to go, but Judy is nowhere to be found. They tried to use their phone to call the Farrell household to see if Judy had just left a little early from the babysitting gig, but their phone didn't work. They discovered that the telephone wires had been cut outside the house. Police were notified of this at 3.18 a.m. And credit to the Redford police, uh, for investigating this so promptly and so quickly. I know that, um, you know, that's really their job. That's what they should be doing anyway. But as you'll see later as we get on into the Oakland County child killer cases and the, everything that surrounds it, that unfortunately was not the rule and oftentimes the exception when they would investigate quickly. So according again to the Redford Observer and Eccentric in their January 5th, 1976 issue, policewoman Sandy Retz said... Neither child can recall any other person being in the home, and added neither heard a gun go off in the house, even though police found a spent twenty-two caliber cartridge in the ceiling of the Lot's home. There were no signs of forced entry. So, when police get on the scene early that morning, again, there's no signs of forced entry. The telephone lines are cut, obviously, that's very odd. Um, and they actually see footprints in the snow at the home, but someone had kicked snow over them to obscure them. Now all sorts of alarm bells are off, right? I mean, this is no this is no run-of-the-mill teen running off situation. I mean, there's something seriously wrong here. So police, they do get to searching, but they don't do a lot of finding. And they start knocking on doors early the next morning to see if anyone saw anything, knows anything, heard anything, right? Any of that kind of stuff. And they find pretty much nothing until they get to the Purvinkler household just down the street from the lots. Mr. Purvinkler says, well, my youngest, Gary Purvinkler, he, he's been missing. And it's weird because he had a stomach flu all New Year's Eve, so we don't know like where he got off to. I mean, he's sick. It's not like he'd want to go very far. Police, they take note of this, that he's missing, and they do a little cursory walk through the property. Mr. Purvinkler's gun, Mr. Purvinkler's car are all missing, and then they found on a corner of like the Pervinkler yard some cigarette butts and binoculars. And if you look through the binoculars at the right angle, you're looking right into the Lotz household where Judy Farrow had been sitting the entire night before. So police think they have their guy. If they can just get to this guy, they've got the, they've got the guy with Judy, and they can uh, hopefully save the day and be some heroes. Unfortunately, this information comes too late for Judy Farrow. 
In a park nearby, some people walking in the morning discover the dragged, lifeless, strangled and shot body of Judy Farrow. Now, this is a total shock to the community, to the family, and it appears in the Detroit Free Press on the front page in an article January 2nd, 1976. The article title is Redford Babysitter 16 Slain. Then it goes on to talk about a little bit of the summary that I already talked to you about. And then also talks about just who Judy Farrow was a little bit as a person. So police are all looking for Gary Pervinkler, but they can't seem to find him anywhere. I know this appears on the front page of the Detroit Free Press, but this is really not something that registers very much in the community. Redford being in western Wayne County, it's a pretty safe area at this point in time. This doesn't happen very much. This is certainly a tragic event, but it doesn't register in any way on a larger scale outside of really the Redford community. Oakland County, some parts of it are pretty close to Redford. She went to school in Oakland County, but it's not really registering up there. It's not really registering registering throughout the community. Now, I wanted to know who these people were as people. They're not just figures on a statistic database. They're not just people on a page or pictures. They're not actors. These are real people. And I wanted to know what Judy Farrow was like. Here's a quote from the Redford Observer and Eccentric. Quote, Judy would greet you with that sweet smile. She had no great ups and downs. She would always speak to you first. Some students wouldn't bother, but Judy wouldn't pass you without saying something. Even though there are 1,300 students at the school, Sister Chamomile says Miss Farrow's friendliness attracted attention. Her high grades in Spanish enabled Judy to become a member of the Language Honor Society, and the sister said, Judy was also a very talented art student. A number of pen and ink drawings done by Miss Farrow are hanging in the school. A very active student, Miss Farrow had already volunteered to run a booth at the school's annual spring fair. Judy was a very sensitive student, said Sister Chamomile. She wrote a poem to one of her closest friends as a Christmas present. End quote. This podcast isn't just about a story. This podcast isn't just about facts and things that happened. They're also about the people within them. These aren't just statistics. These are real people, and it's just a tragic loss of the brief life of Judy Farrow. Police really don't have very much time to kind of collect their efforts, though. Redford police, of course, are investigating this, but also because Mr. Pervinkler is his whereabouts are unknown. Other police agencies are also kind of keeping an eye out for him as well. However, just a few days later, January 16th, 1976, young Cynthia Kaju is at a friend's house in Roseville. Now, I described a little bit earlier Detroit, which is in Wayne County, and then north of that is Oakland County. Cynthia Kaju, she actually lives in Macomb County, which is to Oakland County's east, but still Wayne County's north. So it's bordering both of these. It has close proximity to Detroit, close proximity to Wayne County, but it's not uh, within Oakland County's borders. So it's just right there kind of on the border with both places. Cynthia Cadger's at a friend's house when she leaves to go home decently late in the evening before school. So she goes, and that's uh, the last that anyone ever sees her alive. 
The next day at school, of course, again, the 1970s era before cell phones, era before really Stranger Danger, a lot of what we'll discuss later in the podcast really brings about Stranger Danger. So this is before all that. So the school's not calling the parents to say, hey, your kid didn't report today. Cynthia's friend is none the wiser because, hey, Cynthia went home yesterday. Maybe she's sick. Maybe she's got something going on. She's not in school today, whatever. Her parents aren't worried either, though, because... When Cynthia doesn't come home that evening, they figure, hey, she probably spent the night at her friend's house, was probably out just having a good time. She's probably at school today, and we'll see her later this evening. When Cynthia doesn't make it home, though, her parents worry. Unfortunately, by the time that things really begin to click and the alarm bells begin to sound for Cynthia and her family, it's already too late. According to an article that the Traverse City Record Eagle published on January 19, 1976, quote, the nude body of Cynthia Kadju was found early Friday on a Bloomfield Township road by a motorist. She may have died because she refused to ride home offered by a classmate. I'm going to get into that last part there, just brief commentary here. Uh, she may have died because she refused a ride home offered by a classmate. I mean, that's astronomically poor writing it's almost like to me it blames cynthia for her murder like hey you know cynthia we know you were murdered and everything but it was kind of your fault because you didn't let your friend drive you home like no it's it's definitely the murderer's fault that cynthia was murdered it's certainly not cynthia's just shocking to read that, but let's just do some analysis and look past that quote there. Roseville is about 20 miles and at this point about 45 minute drive to the east of Franklin. The I-696 freeway, which will speed up any potential journeys to these locations, is still under construction. It's not built yet, and so it's not a straight shot. It's just not a place you go. It's not like she got lost on the way home from school. It's it's not a real place that you would end up. So she ends up from Macomb County in smack dab in the middle of one of the most affluent communities and affluent places in all of Michigan. It's a nice place. It's a good place to live. If you own the crappiest house in Birmingham, I think you're doing all right for yourself, to be honest. Um, so she is sitting there babysitting her two nieces and unbeknownst to her, there are a series of break-ins across Birmingham. And if you're thinking maybe that this is that Gary Purvinkler guy, he killed Judy, he hasn't been found, he's on the run, we'll get to that. But hold that theory in your mind for now. The person burglarizing these houses all over Birmingham, he actually finds someone who's home in one of the houses and ties the homeowner up while he's robbing him. And he's threatening him in all sorts of ways. I'm going to kill you and all this stuff. The guy's tied up. I mean, a very harrowing moment, but the guy actually, he only makes out with $5. Now, you can inflation adjust that that $5 from 1976 all you want, but that guy sure did not make out with much from that house. So, you know, he's continuing to break into houses all across Birmingham when he comes across Sheila Schrock in her home. Now, unlike what happened with the previous homeowner, when he leaves that house, he actually doesn't kill him, which is important. That's very important for later. But when he gets to Sheila Schrock babysitting the kids, the kids are actually up sleeping, very similar to what happened to Judy Farrow. But he finds her, the theory goes that he spooked or something because he's not expecting to find people in the house, and he does find someone in the house. Instead of just tying her up or something, he brutally, brutally rapes her. I mean, it, 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 I'm not going to get into crazy detail but it's pretty violent 
and then he shoots her, I believe it's five times. Now, the police are already in the area because they have been getting reports of these break-ins, and they do receive 911 calls to the commotion in the area of Sheila Schrock. But that's all they get is the area because the address that's reported initially is the wrong address. And the screaming has stopped at this point, I'm assuming, because they can't find the house that this is going down in. Eventually, they do kind of find the house, though. And like something out of a Hollywood movie, Sheila's killer slips out the back door and then goes around and then is in the pedestrians who are mingling in the front of the street. And he's kind of looking all concerned and stuff like that because he wants to blend in. And then he kind of slips his way out, walks a block or two to his car, starts it up, and leaves. Now, the reason that we know this is because it comes out in subsequent days in various newspaper articles that the homeowner gave a description of the person who invaded his home, who also killed Sheila, and then this description matched an individual that several onlookers at the scene of the crime behind the police line had also seen. Now, to me, Cynthia's case seems a little bit divorced from these, but Judy Farrow was babysitting, and the kids she was babysitting was fine when she ultimately was missing and found murdered close to her house. Sheila Schrock, of course, the kids she was babysitting were fine, and she was found murdered in her house. So definitely some similarities here, and this sets off a little bit of some community awareness and maybe a little bit of a panic in the community. I'm going to quote here, from a newspaper article that I found by the United Press International, which is kind of similar to like an Associated Press type outlet. Quote, The murders of two Detroit suburban teenaged babysitters within three weeks, plus the slaying of a third teenage girl whose body was deposited in a snow-covered suburban road last week has touched off an intense, coordinated police manhunt. Of course, we know that girl deposited in the snow was Cynthia Kaju. So this is really where we start to see things happen in the community. We start to see the community go kind of crazy. And in this article here, it is saying that, quote, there were reports police considered him being uh, Gary Pervinkler, the key suspect in the Schrock murder. But Birmingham Police Chief Jerry Tobin and Redford Township Police said they were not convinced the youth was involved and so they actually find his car his car is abandoned near Cadillac Pervinkler is nowhere to be found but they find his car I believe January 13th so that's before the murder of Cynthia Kaju and before the murder of Sheila Schrock now I know I'm throwing a lot of locations at you maybe it helps to have a map of Michigan out I don't know but all you really need to know is that Cadillac is what we colloquially in Michigan consider up north quote-unquote so this is kind of where the vacation town is, the summer towns, the rural towns, the up north. That's what we call it. And Cadillac is a multi-hour drive from Metro Detroit. It's sort of in the western, northwestern part of the Lower Peninsula. So multi-hour drive from the areas where these crimes take place. So while I suppose you can't rule Gary Pervinkler out of Sheila Schrock's murder... I don't really think you can rule him in either because his car is found abandoned so, so, so far from home. The community, though, is starting to be on edge. Here's a quote from that same United Press International article. Quote, things like this just shake you up. I won't leave a young girl alone in our home until they catch the guy. End quote. So while you have people quoted in the United Press International article like this, you don't exactly have a lot of community panic. People aren't 
changing their behaviors. Remember, this is the 70s. This is still the era of let your kids go play, lose track of them, and they'll come home when the lights turn on and all that fun stuff that's, you know, really just quintessential to the 70s childhood sort of stereotype and, and what went on. So there's not a lot of real behavior changes, except things are simmering beneath the community. And I really implore you at this point to put on your investigative hat. What's going on here? Are these cases related at all? Could they be related? Is it too soon to say that they're related for sure? Start to think maybe a little bit like an investigator because this is episode one of the podcast. This is a multi-part, I mean, 10 plus episode series that we have to cover. And in episode one, we've already covered three kids getting killed in the span of 19 days. So if that tells you anything, this thing is going to get really crazy really quick. I'm Eddie White. This is the Forever Children of Oakland County. And I hope you'll stick around because next week we've got to cover a strange case of a boy being taken, held for days at a time alive, and then dumped by the side of a public road for seemingly all to see. Um, I've, you know, my daughter is 14. I can't even imagine what it was like for her. She doesn't have any, you know, there's no other adult in the household. She's got her teenage son. Her younger son is missing. And I know she just laid in bed all night waiting for him to come home. The Detroit Free Press publishes an article that Mark Stebbins was not killed the day that he was abducted. Police are saying that Mark Stebbins not, again, not killed the day he was abducted. He was kept alive for days. So I'm out here at the intersection of 10 Mile and Greenfield in the New Orleans Strip Mall. This is about, uh, anyway, the approximate location of where Mark Stebbins' body was discovered. The Forever Children of Oakland County is a podcast produced, written, and done entirely by me, Eddie White, out of a burning desire to see these cases solved and a love for my community. This was not free to make, and if you want to support the show, you can do so at anchor.fm slash eddie-white4 slash support. That's a-n-c-h-o-r dot f-m slash e-d-d-i-e dash w-h-i-t-e-4 slash support.